Remember, remember Snoop Dogg's, uh, was it Snoop Dogg's album? DJ Easy Dick. Remember that? <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't remember that? No. Is that too West Coast for you? Like you refuse to listen to Snoop Dogg? Is that no, how deep that your your hatred went? Snoop is great. Snoop is great. Um, so are you saying that when Tupac came out with Hit Him Up, you were like, that's it, I'm done with all West Coast hip hop, and you just threw away your far side tapes? No. <laughs> that's what this show should be about. a really good song. What's a good song? Hit him up. Ooh. You better watch what you say. All of New York is going to be mad at you. Everyone knows that. Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I'm Jason Miles, your host for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe, and if you're enjoying what you see, make sure you hit the notifications bell as we're constantly adding new episodes and doing cross streams with other channels like our bi-monthly news show, Revolutionary Reckoning. With David and Matt of Left Reckoning, we will not be doing that uh, this coming week since of the holiday. So we will be re-airing, excuse me, an older episode that I did with the late Mike Davis. It was back when we had totally different audio and live stream guests. Those newer to this program may not be aware that we are an audio podcast as well. Actually, this show started out as an audio show, but alas, things change. Our show is always available on audio podcast. If you go back in the archives, you'll find that the audio only shows were different guests than the live streams. Thank you, Pascal, for convincing me I was doing too much. So if you enjoy the show, and miss the live stream, or if you like to listen to podcasts and your grueling mega commutes, then subscribe to This Is Revolution everywhere you get your podcasts. Also, we have to talk about the merchandise. If you enjoy what we do here uh, at TIR and don't want to make the monthly patron commitment, then you can show your support with revolutionary merch. MT, can you bring up the merch on the screen, please? 
You're supposed to talk about it. How wonderful. I'm is. supposed to talk about it? Yeah. I thought you okay. I have the teleprompter Let's... up. I can't I can't do both at the same time. I you bring it up and then you and your in your lovely melodious voice are supposed to talk about how awesome it is to get Pascal's smiling face on a mug t-shirt mouse pad. Also, I have to pimp the merch. <laughs> if you enjoy what we do here and TIR. <laughs> you got to have your own line. <laughs> you got to have it super you, New York. Like, like you got to be like a New York dude selling bootleg dresses. At the oh, show. my gosh. <laughs> In a like parking Tyrese. lot. Like Tyrese and Baby Boy. That's what you got to do right now with the East Coast version of Tyrese and Baby Boy. If you don't want to make the monthly Patreon commitments, <laughs> you can show your support with revolutionary merch. Show um, merch. <laughs> I'm so mad at you for reading the directions. Yeah. <laughs> like an actor where they're like, and smile intently. <laughs> Well, you can let your coworkers know where you stand with this <laughs> is revolution mug. You made that up on your own, that's you. I that's did. Look, uh, Pascal will not be joining us today, but that's okay because I believe, and this isn't a replacement. This is just another member of the team. He's Wait. Just um what yes so oh sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry can we show um the cartoon of the of the host yes before we bring him in sure yeah okay you do it you're the, hey uh, you are the you are the super producer of the show in with the melodious I, voice yes <laughs> all right here's a picture who's the artist i don't know I don't Somebody know who the artist is. At, at first, I thought it was uh, the captain and Cuba as Gilligan. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were the one that told me that it was Tintin. And I was like, oh, that is totally Tintin. Yeah. And the they hair. made him the blue shirt. And there's a Haitian thing in there, too, right? The symbol that's on the Haitian flag is on Pascal's hat. I mean, I, th- I thought it was awesome. That is the one. <laughs> <laughs> whoever whoever uh, drew that, what should we do? For- can we give them something? Yeah, we have to. Okay, whoever drew this, can you message me? Booking at This Is Revolution Podcast um, and or Twitter, This Is Revolution. What is our Twitter again? <laughs> at T-I-R show Oakland Um, and we will send you can we send them something we'll send you something yeah Kuba's cuter than that is he that's an adorable picture it is an adorable picture it is an adorable picture it's like Kuba with with the post haircut hair because there's different phases of Kuba you get. You get Kuba when he's working from home and doesn't have to do Zoom meetings and the beard grows out. You get Kuba, you know, right before the wedding when 
but he's got to shave his face and look like a grown 12 year old there's so many different phases of kuba that you get you know let's not talk about the 50 shades of kuba let's bring in everyone's favorite middle manager of the death star he is my good friend he's moving up in the batting order today mm -hmm. and uh he's got a glorious view of downtown Corsican. deep state kuba <laughs> <laughs> oh hello that was uh that was a lengthy conversation you had about me <laughs> without me <laughs> hmm. interesting I don't know who drew, who drew the picture, Kuba. Do you know? Yes, the uh, picture uh, came out of the Kuba uh, Deep State room um, on our Discord, and uh, a user named Manrixon um, produced both of them. So, um, okay, uh, I pinged them uh, on the channel there, so they know to reach out. We have and to. That's that's really dope. So they say what they want on the website, and we'll we'll send it to them. Oh, did um, but I feel like it would only be fair to to get some uh, merch in the hands of the the first artist too, because um, the Tin Tin, that was that was a bit of a bespoke project um for MT, uh, <laughs> but um. The picture that I use in my Twitter background, that also came out of that channel. And um, frankly, I want to encourage as much Deep State Cuba fan art as possible. <laughs> let, let a thousand flowers bloom. I approve. <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Deep State just said uh, that she approves. That is adorable. Can you Can you give Mrs. Deep State a nod? And a, and a hello from me and a virtual hug. I would actually virtual hug Mrs. Deep State. Summer, um, they're calling you Mrs. Deep State. No. <laughs> that that's the only thing I'm going to I'm going to communicate. He's snitching on us. <laughs> um, they said. Um, Jason, sending you a virtual hug. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> she came over immediately at Mrs. Deep State. Like, it was full, full-blown glare, right? You think that's powerful sunlight out there, but the glare in here will give you a tan. That's all I need. Someone's yelling us in eight different languages. Yep. <laughs> Um, film before a live studio audience. <laughs> I, also, I want to say that there will be a, a big announcement coming from the, the TIR and, and a few other channels. Um, Monday, 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 we'll have a big announcement. I can't say yet what it is. I'm excited for the announcement. It definitely involves the people that you hear 
and even some that you are hearing. So Monday, stay tuned for big. I want to be intro too. Oh, oh, okay, okay. (laughs) And how can we forget the woman that makes all of this happen? She is the headless, faceless voice of reason. She is the M2 song. Hello, hello. Jason, good to see you. Don't gender me. <laughs> Kuva, hey. thanks for wearing the see-through shirt on Saturday. We oh, like it. Is he nipped out? A little is bit. It cold? Is it cold? <laughs> is it cold in his apartment? Please now tell me it's cold. <laughs> Kuva has no central heat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to keep it old country. <laughs> and that's Kuba saying Cam. a lot. You don't wear uh, pants either, so. Maybe he's got long johns. He's got a shirt tie and a long johns on. <laughs> long johns? Aren't Canadians born with long johns on? Damn. The, are you body hair shaming? <laughs> <laughs> I would never. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. We are so mean today. Let's get serious. I actually yeah. found a serious thing to uh, to talk about. But, yeah, Pascal won't be joining us. He's taking a very well-deserved break. So could you guys please wish the brother well <laughs> on his day of rest? Send him a shout-out on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, thank you, guys, first of all, for tuning in today. I'm sure y'all are ready to dive right into the topic of thinking beyond capitalism. I'm excited as is the TIR crew to talk with the brilliant Steve Paxson. But before we bring in Steve, I want to bring to light a recent front page article I read in the LA Times this morning about the persistence of Section 8 housing discrimination, even though there are laws on the books that prevent it. One of the things we're going to discuss today are, of course, property relations, freedom, and bourgeois ideas of equality. From the article in the LA Times, More than two years after a law in California made it illegal for landlords to refuse to rent to people who pay through Section 8 and other subsidies, leasing agents routinely reject tenants because of their vouchers or illegally discourage their applications, according to tenant advocates and state officials. The state's Civil Rights Department-sponsored testing, revealing that nearly Half of properties polled in L.A. County this year showed signs of, quote, unlawful discrimination against voucher holders. Like the state, the Housing Rights Initiative, a national investigative nonprofit, has sent people to pose as renters in L.A. and test whether landlords accept Section 8. Los Angeles is a festering hotbed of housing voucher discrimination, said Aaron Carr, the group's executive director. The Section 8 program, named after a section of the Federal Housing Act, is one of the U.S. government's most powerful tools to keep rental housing affordable and fight overcrowding and homelessness. Administered by local agencies, the program was launched in the 1970s by the federal government as an alternative to costly public 
housing projects, which were criticized for segregating poor families in neighborhoods with low quality schools and other substandard services. Unlike public housing, the subsidy under Section 8 can move with tenants so that they can find housing with private landlords. But while Section 8 pays rent for 2.3 million households nationwide, tenants have long found it difficult to find landlords who will accept their vouchers. Vouchers often are worth less than rents in middle-income neighborhoods, narrowing options at the outset. With rentals that are in the right price range, the paperwork, inspections, and delays it can take to rent to Section 8 tenants makes some landlords wary. Other landlords believe voucher holders are bad tenants, which advocates say is inaccurate and can reflect negative stereotypes for people, as well as people of color who make up a majority of Section 8 participants. In 2020, amid a long-running affordable housing crisis, California joined a handful of other states when a source of income law effect, making it illegal to discriminate against tenants who pay the subsidies. Before the state acted, the city of Los Angeles passed a similar ordinance, which also took effect in 2020. Under these laws, landlords are not required to lower the rent to make it affordable to voucher holders or to rent to every Section 8 household that applies. But they can no longer refuse to consider a tenant for having a rental subsidy. Once common rental ads that displayed no Section 8 are now illegal. Implementing different rules for tenants with and without vouchers is also illegal. For example, while landlords can require a certain credit score or deposit, they can't mandate that someone with a voucher meet a higher bar, according to the California Civil Rights Department. Marissa Bowman, a director with People Assisting the Homeless, said she encounters hesitant property owners on a daily basis when helping homeless people find housing. Among the questionable denials, Bowman said, are times when she has inquired about a landlord's screening criteria on income before saying that the clients have a voucher. After learning about the voucher, some landlords change the threshold they have previously laid out and deny the applicants for having income that is too low. It takes extra work to get around these subtle objections, Bowman said. Studies find that voucher holders secure housing more easily in places with source of income laws, but according to a recent Urban Institute report, that benefit isn't immediate. The think tank study indicates that source of income laws have allowed more voucher holders with children to move into neighborhoods with low property rates, but on average it took six years after a law goes into effect to see an increase. Study co-author Daniel Tellis said that's likely because it takes time to educate landlords and tenants on the law and for governments to take enforcement action. In LA County, lack of compliance appears widespread. In a news release in October, the California Civil Rights Department said 38 of 80 LA County properties tested in 2022, nearly half showed evidence of unlawful discrimination and the department would bring enforcement actions 
where appropriate. The testing found that the most common kind of discrimination was outright refusal to accept Section 8 vouchers, followed by properties that offered better terms like lower rent to people without vouchers. According to Chancellor Al Mansour, executive director of the Housing Rights Center, the nonprofit that conducted the testing for the state. Dan Yukelson, executive director of the uh, Apartment Association of Greater LA, said red tape has long discouraged mom and pop landlords from taking Section 8, and many small owners who don't have armies of lawyers and employees simply aren't aware of their new responsibilities. There is a lot of misunderstanding, he said, criticizing the government for doing a poor job of communicating what the law is. Tenant advocates similarly called for more landlord education, but said authorities must increase enforcement as well. Doing so would ensure that more people are housed and that the human and physical costs of homelessness are reduced. The government needs to be instilling the fear of God in real estate, Carr said in an email. Anything short of that is policy failure. Quote. Currently, enforcement differs by location. The state civil rights department investigates violations across California, while local authorities can play a role if those jurisdictions like Los Angeles have their own source of income rules. Anna Ortega, an assistant general manager of Los Angeles Housing Department, said the agency hasn't investigated sources of income complaints because it can tracks our out fair housing services and refers such complaints to the housing rights center the nonprofit then files lawsuits itself or reports source of income complaints to state and federal authorities as we constantly discuss inequality programs like section 8 were designed to solve that problem uh, that was created when when uh, when we had massive housing projects does the Section 8 system go far enough or do we need a better system or better enforcement of the laws that we already have on the books? What say you, Cuba and MT? I think that um, the this is actually that um, relates to a part of um, what we'll be talking about with um, Steve Paxton, uh, Stephen Paxton, um, where if you make the government um, or you know public services uh, available on the basis of uh, a means test, um, then you because it's not um, going to be used by middle class people, um, let alone wealthier people, then um, there tends to be systemic um, under supply and uh, all kinds of barriers and um, quality problems as well. And um, there, the stigma of poverty gets attached to the benefit. Um, and you can see this in another form with uh, public transit, uh, especially in places like LA. Um, everything is geared for someone who, um, owns their own car. Um, if you don't and you rely on 
getting around by bus, then it's not supposed to be um, convenient. It's not supposed to be easy because it's part of this kind of infrastructure of humiliation at um, people using public uh, services, even if they're paying for them. And uh, you, if you're a landlord in the market as well, that stigma gets applied to people with uh, Section 8 housing, right? It's it's they're not the tenants you want, um, you know. If if you're looking at it from um, either through class snobbery or through just a, a brutal calculation of um, are they going to be able to consistently um, provide us with uh, with rent money? Um, are they going to um, the best tenants are, of course, the ones that uh, have the resources um, and the time to handle everything themselves, even, you know, and, and take responsibilities off your plate. And the, again, it's the, the stigma that, um, that makes Section 8 um, voucher holders um, seem like bad tenants. In the United States, there's that additional level of, um, kind of moral capitalist judgment that if you're poor, this implies some kind of life or character failure. Mm -hmm. MT, did you want to add to that? Uh, I think that's all very well said. <laughs> the stigma is a real problem. I see it all, you know, all kinds of places, no Section 8. Or if I do see Section 8 accepted, it's a really run-down kind of place. Some fortunate, really. I mean, there's crazy tax breaks that uh, people can get with Section 8. Um, and some people have been able to really benefit um, from that. And that's why you get either slumlords on one hand or, you know, like we were talking about in San Francisco, where they're having that whole holdup on building housing, just building housing in general in a city that is in desperate need of just housing. Yeah. Before we even talk about, you know, low income, they just need market rate housing in San Francisco. Yeah, it's um, it's a way of policing the class line in a hyper stratified uh, society. If you have um, high quality public housing available. Um, then in, if you look at uh, rents in uh, many European countries, the um, you have to, as a landlord, provide something nice in order to get, um, in order to convince people that they shouldn't be um, just living in um, what's publicly available. And... Uh, Rents at that point are um, get controlled by uh, increased demand, um, while the um, alternatives you still have developers and landlords fighting for that premium market yes. in the United States. But um, now, if you don't fall there in, into that bucket of kind of premium tenants, then um, your alternatives are absolutely meager. Um, and the uh, you either have, like you said, uh, slumlords, basically people who specialize um, at 
operating the Section 8 incentive and, and tax uh, credit system rather than um, providing housing or on this very patchwork um, access. And the, um, the whole housing is a right um, language, I think, is reminds us that there's no reason why everything, uh, including the shelter that people need to survive, it should be um, generated on a for-profit commodity basis in the market, because that's not looking after people's rights. That's just creating um, extraction opportunities, literally rents for um, those that started out with the capital to make the investments. Well, that's literally uh, kind of the crux of what we're going to be talking about today and why I thought this story was so interesting. Even if we weren't going to be talking with Steve, I thought it was an important story. Um, and, I, and I think more often than not, these situations don't get the coverage and people don't have kind of a good idea of the history. And when we look at things through the American lens, then we see public housing as somewhat substandard. So let's get into why that may even be. MT, are you ready to bring in the uh, guest? Sure. I just want to say really uh, quickly, go ahead. It's, go ahead. it's really cool that um, this topic is resonating with the chat. Uh, housing obviously affects everyone mm -hmm. or lack thereof. Uh, yes, ready to bring in our guest. As someone who did this show unhoused <laughs> for longer than people think. Uh, in addition to an academic career culminating in doctoral research with G.A. Cohen at Oxford, Steve Paxson has worked on building sites and in betting shops, been a PHP programmer and a t-shirt designer, been employed, self-employed and unemployed, blue collar, white collar and no collar. He combines the experience of this varied career with his academic background to bring unique insights to the printed page from Paxton's upcoming book, how capitalism ends. If we want to understand how capitalism ends, then we need to understand what capitalism is and how it arose. We might then be in a position to know whether it's possible to move on, and if so, then how and to what. We also need to understand the nature of historical progress and the ways in which large-scale Lasting changes are driven by a dynamic interaction between technological developments and human rationality. This is the process which saw capitalism emerge from the feudal past, and it's the process which will see us move forward away from capitalism into something else. I'll argue that a post-capitalist future which lies broadly within the concept of socialism is both desirable and obtainable. That is a quote from the upcoming book, How Capitalism Ends. Please welcome our guest. Are you ready to bring him in? Mm-hmm. Mr. Steve Paxson. Steve, what prompted you to want to write this book after you 
um, wrote unlearning marks. I mean, obviously you're no, you're, you're no stranger to provocative topics. Um, well, I guess, um, I think unlearning marks is kind of, is, is something I wanted to get out of the way, um, early on really before I tackled this subject, because I think, so part of what I'm, I'm aiming at is to try and obviously convince people that socialism would be a good idea. And one of the very first responses to that is 100 million deaths under socialism, communism, Soviet Union, there, there you go, checkmate. So I, that unlearning Marx was kind of a, just a way of kind of um, just getting, tackling that argument on its own um, individually. So then this book is more, um, kind of having got, got that out of my system this book is more concerned with kind of uh, a broader look um i think unlearning marks really was kind of i mean a lot of that was stuff that i did in my doctorate many years ago so it was kind of a kind it's quite an academic -y kind of a book and it kind of appealed really to people that were already quite immersed in the kind of things that you guys talk about on this podcast and, and that we all kind of spend our time talking about and this book really is kind of while it is, I think there's plenty in it for, for those people as well, but it's also trying to say, to trying to appeal to a wider audience. Um, I think it does. I, th I, I, think, think, I think what we have to, is, I mean, it's really simple, really. we can't have socialism until we're more socialist. So we need to convince people who want to be socialists that they ought to be socialists. Um, I think and this book is kind of aimed at that, but there is also a problem on the left where lots of socialists spend most of their time berating other people for not already being socialists or complaining that they're the wrong sort of socialist or you know, calling them libtards because of some tiny little dis discrepancy or disagreement about strategy or tactics or analysis or something. And actually what we need to do is we need we need those people that, that are not, there are loads of people out there that kind of share our goals, share our aims, broadly agree with us about what constitutes a just society, but kind of think that you can do that within capitalism. And when you start saying to them, so we're, I'm trying to say, well, firstly, no, you can't because the nature of capitalism prevents that. And secondly, actually getting past capitalism isn't that big and scary. I mean, it's big. It's obviously it's a big task, but it's not it's not impossible. And it's not something that is kind of inevitably going to lead to the gulags. And so this book kind of tries to address that. So the first section history looks at how we got here and, and kind of what capitalism is and um, how historical change happens and then the the and, and really that part argues that capitalism has done a job as as mark said you know capitalism is a is a really useful way of just making loads more stuff at a certain level of development mm -hmm. but we've got past that level of development now we, our problem isn't that we haven't got enough stuff it's just that it's really badly distributed and, it, and it's all the wrong stuff often the wrong stuff um so there's this kind of, you know, it's practically, we can see, we can look at the world and go, look, this isn't working anymore and we need something else. Um, and then the second section is, is about ideology because capitalists will argue, even though, okay, you've convinced me that this is a suboptimal system, but it's the only way to deliver freedom and, and it's the only way to deliver, you know, property rights. It's the only thing to protect property rights. And it's the only kind of the market is this kind of final arbiter of everything and that's the, that, that there's justice in that so the the ideology section argues against that kind of defense and then the final section progress looks at you know, ways we may be able to progress away from this and ideas about how we might be able to move forward 
and what that kind of change might look like. It's it's not prescriptive. I'm not demanding that we must follow certain policies. I'm kind of saying, look, these these are the shapes of things that we need to be thinking about, and this is the, these are ways that we need to start moving in that direction in a way that is not that scary for people that aren't quite yet convinced. The people though we need those people on our side. <laughs> We're not going anywhere while we've got the number of socialists that we've got now. So we need to convince some more people and we need to bring them on a journey with us. We, you know, there's, um, there's, there's a lot of inertia among people in, in wanting to move, but there's also this massive kind of pressure from right-wing media and the education system and everything else that kind of bolts, that bolts up the status quo. So we need to kind of address these things, but we need to, to bring people with us on a journey. You put capitalism not in the most negative light in this book. You're, I think you have a pretty honest portrayal of, uh, of the capitalist system. Uh, why, why did you uh, want to do that? Um, I think that's the marks coming out, really. <laughs> uh, so you know, I, I, what I'm saying about capitalism largely, um, I don't mean in terms of kind of the technicalities of how the economy works, but its role in, in history and, and what it's what it's done. Um, I'm kind of agreeing with Marx there that, in, that capitalism is, as a system, capitalism is at at a certain stage of technological development. Capitalism is brilliant at making more stuff, at just increasing productive capacity. Mm-hmm. The system is controlled by individuals who just want to be richer, and the way they get richer is by is by running successful businesses. And you know, if somebody's if, if you want to be rich. Capitalists don't care whether you like your car or your phone or whatever. They care whether you're just going to keep buying from them. And a byproduct of that is that they have to make something you like or something that's successful. They, they, they don't, they're not interested in satisfying human needs. They're inter- interested in making money. But the way to make money is to satisfy human needs better than anyone else. Now, of course, there's huge problems with this because the only needs they're interested in are the, the needs of those people who've got the money to pay. They don't care if you're starving, but but if you're starving and you've got some money, then they'll be there ready to swap some food for some money to, to enrich themselves. So there is a way, although, you know, there's a terrible human cost of capitalism, there's huge amounts of inequality. It's mm-hmm. kind of devastating for the planet. Mm-hmm. It, it's, um, it's you know, the whole the way historically, not conceptually, but historically, it's kind of been bound up with empire and that kind of thing. It's... Um, you know, there's lots wrong with capitalism, but what it has done is it's given us this huge amount of productive capacity. Um, so it provides what Marx calls the the, um, the material requirements of free human society. We we can't be free until we've got enough stuff. We can, there's no good sharing everything out when when there isn't enough, because you just piss off everybody, and you know everybody's disgruntled, and then it, the um, in, I don't want to keep quoting Marx, but in his in his words, um, all the old filthy business is is restored. So if you want a successful transition to socialism, you need this kind of amount of abundance that you can then produce. And actually, socialism potentially could could be better at producing more stuff mm-hmm. at the at the level of technology we've now reached. But in fact, it, it doesn't really matter if it isn't. It doesn't have to be. We don't need more stuff. We've got We've got plenty of stuff, you know, food, for example, we, we throw away 28% of the food we produce. We feed loads more of the food we produce to animals so that people in the West can get McDonald's three times a week. Um, <laughs> and yet 9 million people die of hunger every year. 
So the problem is not the problem of all those people dying of hunger is not because we don't have enough food. It's because we can't. We have a system that refuse that would rather throw the food away than give it to hungry people. Yeah, and uh, I think that um, I want to address uh, a couple of things that I saw in the chat related to this. Um, the uh, uh, no one uh, is disputing that there's. Uh, the capitalism is based on the exploitation of uh, labor, but um, for part of its history, that exploitation and the vast human toll that um, it led to uh, paid off in creating infrastructure, industrial infrastructure, which then went into that accelerating um, base, productive base that um, produces the mountains of stuff that allows um, the global standard of living to be above that of uh, subsistence agriculture for the vast majority of the population. It really did transform the material basis of society and everything else with it. And uh, But the, to tie in with the point that you're making in that first section, um, a system that might have this kind of demonic payoff where you accept uh, a certain level of human suffering and uh, you make a great point about uh, unemployment targets, right? It, there's basically a um, portion of the population that gets sacrificed to poverty in order to keep the system running. And that sacrifice in the past led to some tangible um, material, some tangible creative processes, some tangible benefits that accrued historically, not to the people who were being exploited, but uh, at least to others. However, um, arguably, capitalism has crossed a threshold where it no longer incentivizes um, through that kind of um, consumer mechanism that libertarians, and that some of the Others that you take to task in the uh, in the second section of your book uh, describe it as the most productive system ever, um, and instead has begun to eat its own tail. Now, so much innovation is purely speculative. Um, someone in the chat mentioned uh, NFTs, for instance. There's no benefit to anybody um, from the construction of this category of uh, not even commodity because the underlying art exists with, that, with or without the NFT. It's just a speculative financial instrument. And that financial aspect is consuming the productive aspect um, to the point where it's unclear if there's, um, if capitalism can even maintain its own sustainability, let alone provide um, however, uneven net contribution to human development that it did in the past. Did you want to respond to that, Steve? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think. Uh, sorry, I was just distracted by the chat there. But um, <laughs> <laughs> they do that. They do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll cover it up. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the thing is. I mean, I'm not saying. 
um, look how great capitalism is. I'm not saying that if, if I'd been there in 1500 with the power to decide how the world was going to going to accumulate this kind of productive capacity, that I would have said, well, it, okay, that's fine. Loads of people will die, but let's have capitalism because it will do it quickly. But that's happened. We can't we can't change that fact. It has happened, and but and it has delivered this productive capacity. And now what we need to do is um, is to realise that it's it's kind of it's had it's run its course and it's time to go somewhere else now. Um, and I think one of one of the arguments in the book really is about whether whether we you know there's the idea that that we could reform capitalism maybe and um and we could you know we could have we could have a better taxation more progressive taxation system and a better welfare say safety net and things like that and, and obviously we could and those if we get those those are, that's great those are those are good things that's that's not um something to be complained about but that should be part of the progress towards actually removing capitalism for, uh, as the system that we live under because First, well, firstly, all of those gains are, are easily lost again, as we've had in Britain. Um, and, but also, it doesn't really fix the underlying problems. It, it's, it's addressing loads of different symptoms of the problem to do that. And what we need to do is address the actual problem and, and get rid of capitalism. But I do think saying about kind of like that's, a, that's, a, that's an incremental move. Um, and should we... Um, should we should we be happy to, to move in that direction through better welfare state and that kind of thing? I think yeah, def, definitely. If you look at um, Britain in the 70s, I mean, we were talking when you were talking, Jason, about um, Section 8 housing vouchers. Mm -hmm. When I was first unemployed in the UK in the 80s, um, you got housing benefit, and you just they just paid the money into your bank account, or you collected it from the post office in cash, and you went and gave it to your landlord or you went to the pub or whatever but you you know there was no voucher there was no now i think it's paid straight to the landlord um by the time I, you know the last time i was unemployed i think it was it was then paid straight to the landlord that's probably still the case but you know just moving back to that situation that's that's better that's not the answer having 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 cash in your hand instead of a voucher but it's better than where we are now and if you make lots of incremental changes that are all better then that moves us in the right direction. The important thing is not to think that just a load of little changes that don't add up to the end of capitalism is going to be enough because they're all they're all um, take backable, which is what we you know. If we were starting from where Britain was in kind of 1970 with loads of publicly available housing, free university, not just free university education, but being paid to go to university if your if your parents weren't rich or if you weren't rich. Um, the NHS is a fully functioning, totally publicly owned thing, but also loads of nationalised industries as well, and um, steel and coal, and you know we have car manufacturers and travel agents and all kind of things were were publicly owned. So, if we could be starting from there, then we would have a lot less far to go. But we do have to go the whole way and get rid of capitalism because otherwise it's just it's just um, too vulnerable. And that reminds me of something that. You, you talk about in your book too, and we talked about it a little bit the other day on the show. Was the idea of revolution, not always being you know storming the barricades, um, but an incremental process that takes sometimes uh, hundreds of years. And in talking about the free universities and the public housing that sound like it worked for people that were unemployed, which we don't necessarily have here in this country. Um, to repeal that also took time. There was a revolution also against the public goods um, 
would you say started during the Thatcher era? Yeah, so I mean, 79 really is the, the point where we look. I know um, Pascal has talked sometimes about 68 as being significant in America. And I, but I think here we really look at, um, we had the post-war Labour government in 1945 set up the NHS and started all of these really good things. And then they had another couple of terms in the 60s where they introduced comprehensive schooling and things like that. But it's, yeah, 79 with Thatcher, although she didn't kind of get to work immediately, it was probably the 83 election that really gave them the, that was really where they, they started dismantling all those things that have been built since 1945. But that's, you know, and the problem is, that, you know, like the Democrats in America, when Labour get in, all they do is kind of, okay, they, they did make a few things better. They did, they, they did have some achievements, but mainly they just kind of hold the fort until the Tories get back in again and start on the, <laughs> the downward slope. And I think, you know, there's a bit of a parallel there with the, with the Dems. And, and there seems to be this, this idea that, uh, I see it, revolution is going to be swift and it's going to be violent, um, but we don't look Sudden. at that. Sudden, yeah. But we don't look at it yeah. like that in the same way when we look at these uh, right-wing uh, counter-revolutions, if you sure. will, like how we at Pascal talk about uh, the 50-year counter-revolution starting, 50-plus year, starting in 68 with Nixon and, and Reagan. Uh, did you want to... <laughs> <laughs> but I, well, I think... <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to expand on that? That idea? Yeah. So I think the. Um, um, it could be, I'm sorry, because because it, sorry, because it comes out sounding like reform, and for yeah, some okay. reason that's a bad word. Yeah. So I th so I think so. One thing I say in the book is that the debate about revolution and reform is usually framed incorrectly. It's usually a debate about means, and it's about should we be. You know, a revolutionary is out on the streets with a Molotov cocktail and a reformist is kind of writing to their MP and, and joining a union or whatever. But actually, the question of revolution or reform is actually a question of ends. It's are we getting rid of capital? Do we think capitalism can be reformed so we, you know, so that we can have better welfare safety nets and, and a more progressive taxation system and whatever else? Um, or do we think we have to get rid of capitalism? And, th and that's that's the d dividing line between revolution and reform. So in that sense, then I, I'm definitely in favour of revolution because I think we definitely need to get rid of capitalism and move beyond it. And hopefully that will be into socialism. But in terms of the debate about does it have to be sudden and violent and that kind of thing, I think um, lots of people think that that if you if you favour more dramatic means, that makes you more of a leftist. And if you if you mm -hmm. don't then then you you are somehow less of a leftist you're, you're less far left if you if you if you've got if you come up with some kind of really good uh, practical but fairly kind of quiet and uh, but quiet and efficient is 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 rejected by people because it's it doesn't sound dramatic enough um and i think part of the issue so in the first part of the book i look at the, the, the capitalist revolutions that, that that got us to where we are now in you know so in the French Revolution is an obvious example. So when people talk about the French Revolution, really, they they're always talking about 1789 and guillotines and, and that kind of thing, storming the Bastille. But that was really the political world catching up with the economic changes that have been going on for some time. And the same with the, the English Revolution in the um, 17th century. The, you know, we cut a king's head off. We had a civil war mm -hmm. that lasted nine years, I think. But the, all of those things only really happen because of 
economic changes that have been going on that have been slowly kind of developing over a couple of hundred years and what what happened was the the kind of the bourgeoisie had gained enough actual physical clout because of their economic progress that they were able to win what, what we call the english civil war but it was actually the english revolution um and not only were they able to win it but they were able to consolidate it and it took even after the civil war it was another kind of 50 years before they were mm-hmm. um, really starting to um before they got a constitutional monarch they got a king that agreed that parliament had these powers the powers of the king were limited and from there that was kind of the start of the slippery slope for the for the for the old order because you know their power has gradually been eroded away and so, so now the monarchy just don't don't really have any formal political power obviously they're still really rich so and so they've got um uh, some economic power and they because of the hangover of their position they've got kind of the ear of politicians but they don't it, their position doesn't confer them any kind of formal political role um so i think the, the point is that those those changes were there were there are lots of changes there are lots of people experimenting with ways nobody nobody sat around in 1500 and said right let's have capitalism but people did things that sorry my dog's just going there. people did things that made sense to them that they acted in their own self-interest and they you know, used innovations in new ways and the the upshot of that was a was a was a kind of a snowball effect that moved us into a situation where a bunch of people who we now refer to as capitalists had a load of power but they didn't have political power so then they they kind of had this violent seizure of political power so the reason I, th- I think the reason why revolutions have we have this idea of these kind of bi- of this violent seizure of power is just that that's the name we give to those things. But when you read sort of Marx's account of the development of capital, he's talking he's clearly talking about a process where a transition from feudalism to capitalism that goes on for a couple of hundred years, and and he refers to that as the revolution that brought in capitalism. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not kind of you know that the. the the, the sudden violent uprising part of it is the is the end power. It's the political world catching up with the economic changes. And there's no there's no necessary reason why it has to be like that. You know, Marx was talking in the you know in in his earlier life he only had those capitalist revolutions to look back on. And, go, and if you're going to have huge social change and you look back and you see these bloody revolutions, you kind of assume naturally that's how things are going to change in the future. But by the end of his life, he was looking at um, moves towards democracy there was no there were, um the first universal suffrage was new zealand in 1893 so he'd been dead by 10 years for 10 mm-hmm. years by, by that time but he could see this this was coming and he was saying well, why would why would you he kind of wrongly assumed that as soon as you had universal suffrage the working class would just vote for socialists um he didn't kind of, he kind of underestimated the power of the, the media and tradition and deference and that kind of thing but you know it was clear to him that if you if there is a peaceful way to do this, why would you have a violent uprising? Why would you put yourselves through that? Why would you risk all that? Well, uh, I think that there's a way that you can square this circle. You can have your uh, reforms and your violent revolution too. Um, indeed, uh, and I'm jumping a little to the end with your prescription um, because there's some very provocative and interesting uh, proposals that you have um but ones which could succeed within the um logic the the formal technical logic of uh democratic systems in the anglosphere but precisely 
because it might be successful, at some point it's going to attract um, opposition that will not stop at the legal formal limits of uh, political action in democracies. That um, just like uh, the liberal capitalist um, transition provoked uh, backlash from feudal forces, not everywhere and not to the same extent everywhere. But uh, I think that um, you have to, historically speaking, it, it's difficult to, uh, you have to acknowledge that uh, those kinds of ambitious programs um, attract the sort of opposition that might make um, some kind of violent confrontation inevitable. Yeah, I think so. I think that's um, I think that's probably true. But I think that that is what you're doing. Then is you're kind of you're defending your um, kind of democratic rights to do things against you know yes. yes rather, I, I, rather than I, thinking we're we're going to seize the means of production by violent methods. Exactly. The um, it's it, there's a great distinction to to be made between um, the political violence in self-defense or in defense of a project with a popular mandate versus political violence um, against the sort of moral and cultural logic of an existing system, right? Sure. One is um, much more defensible um, and, and constructive than the other, although in both cases, ultimately, you need to succeed if your results are durable, right? The, um, I mean, better to be the Swedish uh, social democrats than the Bolshevik party, but better be the Bolsheviks than Allende in Chile. Yeah. Grim. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah, um, it's um, it's something that I think is. I, I kind of tend to look as you refer to the Anglosphere. I kind of tend to think we're we're probably the last place that, that to look for kind of signs of, of progress, because um, the UK and the USA particularly did so well out of capitalism, and we're, and we're kind of the forefront, the, 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 at the forefront of capitalism at, the, at different stages, and. Because of that, we are always looking back to this this kind of these glory days, um, and wh whereas in other countries people people don't have this kind of obsession with with the past and how great they were, so they're they're much freer to look forward and they and it's and they see it as kind of less challenging, I think, in a lot of places. And I think of all the kind of experiments going on in the world with, I mean, there are experiments. There's an experiment in Wales coming up with um, universal basic income. Um, but Britain and America aren't normally the places that we think of that are going to be more progressive. Maybe, you know, New Zealand, Scandinavia, Germany, Spain, there's, there's loads of the Portugal, there's loads of things going on that are kind of encouraging signs. And, uh, you know, or Britain between 45 and 79, really, you know, was, a, was a, a, a really good example of the way we should, the direction we should be going in. But, um, I think it's probably unlikely to come from Britain or America. We'll be we'll be trailing along, kicking and screaming at the back. And 
to what extent do you think that also reflects uh, because Britain and America not only economically did well under capitalism, but um, they were uh, the last and current centers of um, world capitalist hegemony, um, London and now New York, Washington. Um, and when you look at support for um, capitalist institutions in these countries, um, you have a great deal of identification between the political system, the economic system, and the sort of soul of the country, right? That to be American without being a constitutional capitalist is, uh, is insane, right? Like yeah. um, it ideologically incoherent. But when you look issue by issue, then you have this sort of um, distribution across the income spectrum that you'd expect with a great deal of support for single payer healthcare, a great deal of support for a higher minimum wage, um, all kinds of progressive um, political programs. The uh, I'm curious as to whether the most reactionary element isn't within the middle class that um, if, because if you're middle class in New Zealand, um, in most of continental Europe, um, in Canada, in um, the developed countries of, uh, of Asia, you're not special. You're comfortable, but you're not special. Um, the position that you have in kind of global hierarchies is uh, nothing to be too proud of. But, um, and you point this out with, uh, in your section about um, how a huge part of the um, benefits of wealth come from being able to command the labor of the less wealthy, right? Um, what's the point of having all the money in the world to buy all the stuff in the world if you can't have a butler, if you can't have a maid, if you still have to pick up your own dry cleaning? Um, heaven forbid. And, heaven forbid. And the, and it looks like, um, the position of the middle class in the very core countries of capitalism has a little bit of that um, flavor of hierarchy and authority that um, is missing elsewhere. Um, the It identifies more with elite um, position, the elite class and the, a structure which allows them to look down then um, because there's no reason why uh, the middle class can't form a coalition on uh, at least certain issues with working class socialists. Um, there are huge areas of overlap. The um, people who um, stole your 401k um, or who uh, privatized you out of a job in um, the NHS they aren't working class scroungers, right? They're the, um, you know, the financial vampires of the city of London and New York. And they aren't buying a 
vacation timeshare in Florida, right? They own an island in every ocean. Um, so, um, one reason why you may be more pessimistic about uh, the UK and the US as laboratories for um, innovating beyond capitalism is because of this, um, of the dread appeal of um, social hierarchy, right? The, the sort of siren call of identifying with the billionaire especially in um, economic structures that so severely stigmatize, not just, um, not just deprive economically, but stigmatize socially and culturally um, people who fail to hit that respectability level of property. Yeah. Well, I, I think, so I, I guess the first question is what, what, oh, what do we mean by middle class? Because I think that's a different, that means something different in in the states. Uh, it yes. seems to mean something different to what it means here in the UK. So, in the UK, if you ask people what what are the kind of um, hallmarks of a of a middle class family, one of the first things that people will say is that they send their kids to private school. But that's about seven percent of the population, and you need to be in the top ten percent of earners really to have certainly to have two kids at a, at a you know a, at any private school. You've, you've got to be in the top 10, maybe 15 at a push percent. So there's no, they're not the people in the middle. They're not the median. They're not the kind of the middle 20% or the middle 30% or something. They're, when people say the middle class, they mean kind of from percent three to percent eight of the wealthiest people, which, um, but I think, I th and I think that in itself is, is, is a weird thing because people kind of assume that there, that there are more of the middle class and that it's not that far away. And if they work hard and, you know, people think if, if you know, if they do well, they'll be in, they'll, they'll attain that. But obviously there's a huge gap between that, that position and most people. But I think, is, is it, I, and I'm not sure about this, but my, my um, assumption is that in the US middle class means more kind of, um, an ordinary family kind of in the middle of the of the income distribution would that be right well that that's the thing um in there's a bit of a process of um subtraction that goes on with uh, especially post-war just like the post-war period in the uk was kind of a, a golden age for the working class it um with slightly different language and a slightly different set of um, institutions and programs, it was also a golden age of, um, for uh, certain kinds of American workers. And at that point, you could get a home, buy a home, pay off your debt, um, have access to things like um, very inexpensive uh, public education. And so the idea was that something like home ownership and a um, a vacation, a family vacation a year, a, a middle-class lifestyle, middle-class level of consumption, um, that was within reach of many white male-headed uh, households um, for uh, that middle part of the century, and that becomes what's described as middle class, people who 
achieve that level of comfort and financial security. And the assumption um, was that this would be uh, permanent and indeed uh, eventually perhaps universal apart from, you know, the, the underclass that nobody likes um, that don't, don't deserve it anyway. Um, but it turns out that um, those gains can be dissolved over the course of a generation under um, sufficiently exploitative um, neoliberal reforms. Um, they don't just offshore the working class jobs. They'll also um, liquidate uh, property. Um, and uh, that's too small to, to pool into the um, the ten uh, percent that that you describe as kind of the British middle class, right? Mm -hmm. The 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 people who you know would be described as upper middle class in um, the U.S., but who are at this point look like they might be the only ones um, that can survive a steady slide into immiseration under neoliberal conditions. Yeah, I think as um, I think as well, talking about kind of like you were saying about um, can the um, you know there are loads of loads of policies that that the working class and that most of the middle class would 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 agree on and should be should kind of be allies on, and how can we not getting these and why do we not get these in the UK? Why do people in Denmark have better healthcare than people in the US? Um, you know, why do people in, in, in New Zealand have things that people in the UK can't, you know, we, that we used to have that we're losing? And part of that is, and, it, and this isn't really about the end of capitalism, it's just about, you know, I guess it's about the kind of doing late stage capitalism in a way that might help us to be one of the countries that moves forward, is that we just have the UK and the US, what they, one thing they share is terrible electoral systems. So we, we have minority we have governments that have a governing majority in Parliament. They can, you know, they can um, they can govern, but they're voted in by a third of the of the people. The, the, the usually, I mean, thirty nine percent is enough to get a Tory government here, and that's thirty nine percent of the vote. So it's still it's only about kind of probably less than thirty percent of the electorate are, are continually giving us governments that most people don't want. Um, and you have the same. You've just had the, the midterms in the US. You, you use the same system for the House of Representatives as we use for Parliament, and it's an undemocratic system that ends up with you getting loads of people that you don't want in Congress. Um, and obviously the Senate is, is worse. Um, <laughs> and then you've got the Electoral College for the President. So, you know... Same system you, in Canada. Um, and, yeah, uh, I, Canada and Belarus. The, um, and I think we've run out there by the time. Oh, Italy have a partially first past the post system as well. Although I feel like, um, as a good political scientist, I should point out that um, the electoral system isn't uh, the only place where you've got, um, which determines kind of the level of democracy and the permeability cool. of um, the political structure to. Um, to sort of public demands or, or participation. And one of the observations um, I, I made, one of the thoughts I had when I was reading your final section was, um, and as well as your comparisons with the 
period of the, the labor ascendancy, the post-war labor ascendancy in the UK, was that um, this would require a lot of cadres to, to implement. You need uh, states that can govern with a um, staff that is technically capable, um, committed to the job, if not the project, and um, having a, a willingness to play a leadership role. Um, and one of the consequences of Thatcher and Reagan style neoliberalism is the hollowing out of state structures. You, yeah. uh, the civil service becomes uh, a joke um, and a, a constant but of um, a constant target for vilification, uh, even by the putative left. Um, Obama, for instance, was the first president that presided over a decrease in the number of federal employees. Um, and the elevation of private sector, um, higher pay, but lower social benefit, mm -hmm. um, jobs in uh private sector consulting or finance, et cetera. And those parts of the private sector become uh, the de facto administrative state, or at least uh, a critical component of it. So how do you regenerate that administrative capacity within the state so that it isn't, um, it isn't ex exercised at the whim of um, capital? And the other observation is that the party structure um, is also crucial. Um, the fact that you have multiple parties in Canada, which has um, the, the same Westminster model as the UK, and there are multiple parties in the UK as well, um, that's a cultural uh, construct. And uh, so are rules about uh, lengths of campaigns, uh, a Canadian election, you don't know it's coming, and then it happens, blink, you miss it. Um, and political parties in Canada come and go. Um, there's a couple of larger, more durable ones, but even then, even those have been fundamentally reshaped several times uh, because they don't have the resources um, as private institutions to uh, necessarily be able to weather an electoral catastrophe. People can defect out of them and parties that were once dominant can become completely irrelevant. Uh, in the U.S., the size um, and penetration into the economy, into media, uh, across all major institutions of the two-party system is another reason why you don't get democratic outcomes, even with uh, putatively uh, democratic uh, electoral structures. I think, um, I mean, I think the, as you say, the electoral system isn't the only source of, it's not the only thing to look at, but also it is a fundamental thing that if it's wrong, then it's going to be very difficult to get anything else right. Um, and so, for example, the way that feeds into the um, two-party system is, is that it, it encourages, obviously in America, it's gonna be really hard for a third party under your current system. You've, you've, you've got to, who's gonna vote, you know, the, the, the vote for a third party is tiny because it's basically a wasted vote. But if you change your 
House of Representatives electoral system to proportional representation, you would at the next election, you would get at least one or two, either Green or Libertarian Party or whatever, you would get small party uh, representatives. Then as soon as people realised that that, would that was happening, that would, that would build and they would then, obviously, if you've got representation in the House, I guess you get, I mean, here, here it happens, I guess you get some kind of state funding too. To, you know, to run your office and, and some sort of assistance. So it is, it's not this, none of this stuff is going to happen overnight. But if you want to break down the two party system in the States, the first thing to do is to introduce a democratic electoral system where whoever your vote counts for, whoever you vote for, your vote counts the same as everybody else's. And that's, that's a way to, um, it makes the election democratic. It removes things like gerrymandering is just, there's no point in doing gerrymandering if you have a proper electoral system doesn't make any difference to the result um, but it also does things like break down the um, the two-party system it gives smaller parties higher visibility and you could do things like there's an idea that I refer to in the book it's not you know this isn't these are things none of these things are going to solve the problem of capitalism but they're all sort of things let's do these things first <laughs> and then we can start tackling the bigger the bigger problems but the, among these kind of small things that are kind of should be an easy thing to implement is that um, Thomas Piketty suggests this idea where you just everyone gets a state voucher and to for funding political parties. There's no funding allowed, no donations allowed. Of course, people are going to find ways to get around it, but but it makes it much harder for them. Uh, so basically, everybody gets a voucher from the government, and you choose which political party to give it to. So you can, you know, you might you might just think, well, you know, you might you'd get the the smaller parties would then start to get a realistic amount of funding from or um whichever party has millionaire backers that will buy the vouchers will um be able to squeeze out um public funding from now, do you mean that they would everyone else so uh, imagine um you have a voucher system um in the uk so yeah. everyone from you know Northern Ireland to the Channel Islands um, has can hand over a, a, a ticket worth 100 quid to yeah. um, whoever convinces them. But the legacy Tory party is like, we'll pay you 120 quid if you just give it to us. <laughs> Why would that make them make any sense? Because if you have money, um, thanks to, you know, I mean, that would be illegal, obviously, so they'd have to do it. Well, that's the thing. Um, it, it, it's a little, and, and this is what I, one of the things that I was alluding to, that you're going to attract um, opposition to your program that is going to find techniques like that um, yeah. to um, perpetuate their domination, even through the reforms. And then you're going to need more reforms in order to prevent those tactics from succeeding, which, and, and as soon as you make something illegal, you then have to worry about, well, do we have the cadres and the force to make it stick, whether it's lawyers or whether it's um, constables or whether it's inspectors. And there are, there are problems um, and, like with, with current funding rules, you know, they're quite strict. Oh, absolutely. Funding in, in the UK um, and declaring donations and everything else. And there are ways that people get around it. And, there, you know, there were, there were things and in the, e, in the one, EU. One, 
One thing I taken to court afterwards for breaking the rules, but actually it was too late then because the referendum had happened and they got the result they want under 50 grand fine or whatever was irrelevant to them. Exactly. If you are already backed by capital, then um, mild disciplinary effect, um, measures like a 50,000 50, uh, um, pound fine um, that would smother um, a leftist party or one which requires um, popular funding and operates mm -hmm. on a shoestring, right? Uh, the um, current, you know, billionaire prime minister would just shrug it off. He probably pays more for a game of golf. Yeah. Um, and things, I'm not saying there would be no way of getting around these things, but it's it's measures that they would certainly make a difference, wouldn't they? They would, they would mean, say, for example, in the UK, the Green Party, would have a lot more money if that was the system loads of people support the green party but don't vote for them because our electoral system makes it pointless unless you live in brighton so but those people would would probably give their voucher to the green party so the green party would get some money the fact that the, there are other people that the tories are kind of getting people that are kind of disinterested don't really care who gets their vote maybe would take some kind of a backhander to, to give their money to the tories the tories would still end up with less than they've got now you know, or maybe the same, but but proportionally less because the the smaller parties, the Greens, Liberal Democrats, and SNP, no. would would get. I, I think I think um, I think your um, the program that you sketch out, and it's only I think it's only the last ten pages where um, I I'm looking forward to the next book that blows that up into a hundred. <laughs> um, the it's kind of an afterword that bit really it's kind of saying you know here are, here are some things that we could do now here's some low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. that we can just go and get you know why which is which is important not, you know? right we, we always talk about like trying to you know immiserate some of the suffering and, and Jean Bajlan says it all the time you know a little bit of social democracy especially in the western world goes a long way sure yeah the uh, and I think the program is is sound I don't want to sound too negative about it um, but a program needs an institutions to uh, shepherd it protect it and implement it yeah and um, the source of my despondency um, about the the prospects for uh, the kind of transformation that um, our global society needs in order to simply remain healthy in order to simply remain alive um, let alone become more just is that um, in the anglosphere at least you I don't see either the institutions that can push for um, that those kinds of reforms that can make that program achievable or um, the beginnings of the, the, the seeds from which uh, those kinds of institutions can grow. I agree with you that uh, one of the most sensible and constructive moves would be to just split the Labour Party. Um, because out of the socialist remnant, you might create that kind of uh, institution. But, but that cannot be done until we have a, an, a, a different electoral system. It would just be suicide to happen now. Then, yeah, then it's chicken and the egg. Then, then we, you know, that would be a really good move. Yeah, it could happen almost immediately if, if, 
if, and th these are all big ifs, but if it's, it's not an entirely implausible scenario, if the next election gave us a hung parliament and the Liberal Democrat leader had enough, in the, whoever it is at the time, had enough about him or her to say, I'm not going in coalition with anyone and, unless we have PR, which has been their policy for years. And they've been in two coalitions in my lifetime and not demanded it. Nick um, Clegg. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Clegg, Clegg was fobbed off with with a referendum on AV, which isn't even PR. So I don't know what happened. He just wanted to be deputy prime minister, didn't he? But that um, if they had the, enough about them to actually say, well, we're not having, you know, a condition of our coalition is that we introduce a decent, decent electoral system for the next election. Then the Labour Party would split before that next election happened. The Labour Party would split into two and there would probably be a period where there are a load of little competing socialist splinters, but come election time, they would need to start putting candidates up and they would probably then kind of congeal around some of the, the ones with some big names in or, or, or we're doing quite well. Um, so I think, you know, the, there is a potential there for, for the Labour Party to split and then the Labour Party could have or the socialist party that came out of that could have some MPs, maybe some, you know, and, and a bargaining position. If, if you want us in a coalition, we need, here's some red lines. You know, we need these minimum things and we need two seats on the front bench or something. And that starts to drag us. It's not, it's not getting us anywhere near the end of capitalism. And we, and I, I guess, you know, conversation goes where it goes, but we're kind of focusing on, on kind of the smaller things and, and, and the book is often. I don't want people to get the impression that I've, I've written a book called The End of Capitalism that's all about changing the electoral system. But it's, you know, I, it's, all, it's a path worth, path worth going down. Um, that would then give the Labour Party something that we could, we could start moving the country, you know, in that direction. I harp on this because so much of your book for me um, was simply correct, right? The, uh, that um, the first, uh, you have a, you an accessible and simplified, but um, but uh, you have a potted history of um, the development of capitalism from a Marxist perspective, and um, you hit all of them. You get everything. Um, you give a very fair and justifiable reading. Your section on the ethics of it too, for me. Um, it was uh, concur, concur, concur. You quote Nigel Ashford from the Institute of Humane Studies, who, uh, who I've met personally. He gave me 500 uh, Coke bucks um, for a conference before I knew who he, who what, uh, yes, what it was. 500 Coke bucks means you were his dealer for a key bump, or no, that... K O C H. Ah. Uh, the um, oops. Well, well, I mean, better better me than anybody else. Um, and um, the, but um, I um, but yes, I've I've been kind of pushing you into the the last section because that's where um, that's where I have um, kind of my quibbles and questions, but. Sure. Uh, let's return to the, um, to the big picture stuff. And uh, Jason, uh, I know you had a question. MT has a question. MT has a question. I do mm -hmm. have a question. So wrote I, I wrote a bunch of questions and then you started talking and some of them just got thrown out because, you know, you've been sort of answering them along the way, which is great. 
Um, I do have a question here. Um, how were turnips and sheep manure more important than Cromwell and Robespierre? So I've mm. been thinking about this, these little, these smaller steps that happen that add up to a revolution. At one point in your book, you talk about decoupling work and rewards, but I think we may need to find a way to decouple the idea of revolution and sudden change. We're ignoring the sheep and the turnips right now. I think it's right. a little bit of an addiction. What do you think? Mm. Um, so, well, the sheep and the turnips was was because they were sheep. Well, sheep manure and turnips were kind mm -hmm. of right. um, important uh, discoveries in increasing agricultural production. Without which, we couldn't have had a non-agricultural population. Um, in, like in 1500, three quarters of the people worked on the land, so they're each making enough producing enough food for themselves and a third of another person. So you, that's no basis for the industrial revolution. So all the, all the kind of the, the um, developments that, that happened before that, that allow the industrial revolution um, and the full development of capitalism. So they were important. And I think the, the point I'm trying to make there is with um, the, we, we, generally get taught at school it's certainly in england i'm guessing in america as well we get taught this kind of great man idea of history where it's all about kings and battles and big events and the point i'm trying to make is that those those things of course it's important to learn that kind of narrative history about what happened and who who did what and and and, and why but if you get too stuck on this great great men and and, and battles and kings kind of narrative then you you might imagine that things like um, so there was the Battle of Edge Hill was the first big battle in the Civil War. If the if the Royalists had won that, then you know so what that that, that wouldn't that's talked about in in English history as like a really significant battle. But if the and and the fact that the Royalists didn't win it meant that they eventually lost the war, and um, that that kind of was the ascendancy of the bourgeoisie but of course if they'd if they'd lost that if the royalists had won that battle there would have been another one or there would have been some other process it wouldn't it's not the case that if prince rupert hadn't been a really bad um, military leader and, and lost that battle, then capitalism just wouldn't have happened it would still obviously have you know history would have been slightly different but the the big change which was which was capital the advent of capitalism was still going to happen whether Cromwell or or Robespierre or Prince Rupert or whoever it is did what they did or they did something differently, those kind of kind of big moments and great men and and and, and kings and battles, they're kind of incidental to the story. They're they're they're, they're part of the narrative, but they they don't explain what happened and why. Whereas things like sheep manure and turnips do. Hmm. And sorry, I've forgotten the other part of your question. Um, decoupling revolution from sudden change. Yes, and I think, and we've covered this a little bit earlier. And I think, I think, when we talk about revolution, we, I mean, we don't know. I don't, you know, I don't own these terms. If somebody wants to say a revolution, the term revolution equals, you know, storming the Winter Palace, then that's that's fine. But I think um, I'm kind of writing broadly from from a, a Marxist perspective, and certainly Marx talks about revolution as being the trans transformation from one economic structure to another and when he describes that transformation in um in england in the from the kind of 1500 to the 
middle of the 19th century that's how long it takes and and yes there are flashpoints we do cut a king's head off in there and we do have a civil war but they, that they, those things didn't the, the revolution would have happened without cutting the king's head off the changes are still going to happen and the changes were we got from feudalism into capitalism that's the revolution rather than the you know the, the, the nine-year civil war and, and the regicide so i think yeah for me i mean you can't as i say we don't own these terms we don't I'm, I'm not the arbiter of what re revolution means, but I think um, when we look at history from the point of view that Marx looked at it, and from, from the ones on the left look at history, that the, the revolution is the transition, not the not the um, the storming of the Winter Palace. I mean, your, your 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 earlier book, Unlearning Marx, you know, you talk a lot about the the Russian Revolution and the USSR. Yeah. Uh, and there seems to be kind of an idea that. Uh, and I don't know how much of it has to do. I know I had this conversation with Jean Bajlan um, off air one day that you know, maybe just because we live in a moment where instantaneously every desire can be met, um, that we think change also comes instantaneously. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's ideas of political change that may seem more drastic than they really are i.e. the Republicans are all fascists now. Um, I don't know if Donald Trump was that much different or, or worse than Ronald Reagan. Well, um, I think that that's an excellent point you make about the, um, the difficulty of looking at things over long periods of time in a culture of instant gratification. People think that revolution... Uh, when they're in their consumer mindset, which they're primed to be all of the time by the culture and the economy, um, they imagine revolution as playing cyberpunk 2077. <laughs> um, but revolution is actually making cyberpunk 2077. Mm -hmm. All of the coding, all of the coordination, all of the desperately trying to um, sort out bugs, working with other institutions, um, all of the work work and less of the, you know, mantis blade decapitations. It, it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, when we, when we think of history, it's almost like we still think of it in these quick blocks of time, um, which is, it's kind of like, that's so insane. Like we do multiple shows on things like Native American enslavement, which wasn't 25 years. You know, it was like hundreds of years, right? Uh, I like it, when Zoomer referred to the late 20th century, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that period. <laughs> oh, you mean my childhood. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's someone in the chat trying to, saying that we live in a fascist America and as like, we'll define fascism. And then it's just, you know, senseless rhetoric about Native American slaughter and the military industrial complex. It's just it's just words. Well, well, that's that's the thing, too. And that's one thing that I appreciate about your book when you introduce a concept that um, has different understandings in uh, popular usage in uh, Marxist language in other academic or ideological fields uh, you go out of your way to say this is how I'm going to use it 
and this is what uh, implications it has. For instance, our conversation about revolution, um, and it's absolutely necessary because without that kind of clarity, yeah, you move words around um, all day, and um, it becomes a, a matter less of clarity and more volume. Someone said yeah, I think with capitalism itself as well, it's important to have a kind, you know, lots of people seem to think capitalism means, particularly people on the right, kind of think capitalism means buying and selling things. And, mm -hmm. and you know, as if that didn't happen until <laughs> the 16th century or something. Until Ronald Reagan. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I've even had or, comments. I had one comment on my book. I've said something on Twitter and somebody came and commented, well, you've got a book about how capitalism ends and you're selling it, you know, hypocritical. <laughs> <laughs> so people sold gotcha. books before capitalism. They're going to sell books after capitalism. They're not, this isn't a, a capitalist thing. It's yeah. Making, buying and there was selling. a before capitalism? Not, not only that, but like um, you can't opt out of the capitalist system. Um, I mean, I suppose you can once you have what, $40 million? That might be the floor. Um, then you can live like a hippie at Esalen and um, spend all day saying namaste. But um, the if you are under the condition of needing to support yourself because you don't have a giant um, pile of cash uh, that your parents gifted you, um, from your, you know, great, 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 great grandparents, um, slavery and um, sexism um, corporation, um, then you um, end up having to just work within the system. You can't opt into the common turn, right? Like, there's no place that you show up and it's like, I would just like to work for the revolution, please um, issue me, <laughs> you know, uh, issue me my tracksuit and um, which corner do I unroll my uh, hobo bindle? Um, <laughs> but also, if people think that, that writing books about the end of capitalism is going to be buying me a flash new car or something, then, you know. Zero books, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still have two jobs. Yeah. <laughs> the name of the press comes from how much you get in royalties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's marginally above zero, but it's not very much. Above as I as I suspected, you know, this was going to be a spicy show, so the chat is getting fired up about their ideas of. Uh, what is capitalism and crony capitalism and everything is fascist and capitalism is what I don't like capitalism. Uh, fascism is what I don't like that um, other people like um, the, and that's, that's this, uh, that's part of the conflation. Um, the, and that's part of the terminal uh, terminology problem. When um, <laughs> you jump to, um, when you jump to justification before doing um, the analytic work, uh, before setting up your definitions, then um, for conservatives, capitalism becomes America, apple mm -hmm. pie, Christianity, Jesus. Um, and for people on the left, it is not only 
the economic stru structure, but everything else that you don't like, right? Um, it's uh, toxic fandoms on the internet. It's um, too many franchises um, in, the, in the multiplex. And whether or not you can find a persuasive link between those phenomena, that is not what capitalism is. And what is your definition of capitalism, Steve? That you um, so I tell you, I mean, it's not. I'm not taking credit for it. It's Marx's definition, <laughs> um, or you know, Marx never actually with a lot of things, and it would have been much better if he had done it. Marx didn't actually sit down and write, "This is my definition of capitalism." But you know, we can we can take what he did write about capitalism, and and there are even within a Marxist tradition, there are different interpretations, and there isn't a there isn't one kind of author you know, sort of. Um, credentialed Marxist interpretation of what capitalism is, there are competing ideas about what Marx really meant and which bits he said were more important. But I go with with the parts where Marx argues that capitalism is an economic structure. So it's the sum of production relations within a society or any economic structure is the sum of production relations within a society. And production relations are basically who owns what of productive resources. So mines factories forests but also uh, you know mineral resources um intellectual property but also labor power and also people so you know in lots of human history one of the things you could own was another person mm -hmm. and you know that under capitalism you can't do that but you can buy people's labor power um, so the definition the defining kind of um, what defines a, a capitalist economic structure is that the dominant production relation is that most people own no means of production but they do own their own labor power and that really is a contrast the, the, the way, what marx is doing when he's making that definition is, is he's drawing a contrast between pre-capitalist societies where people often didn't own all their own generally didn't own all of their labor power they may have owed some of their labor power a couple of days a week or whatever to their feudal superior the, the lord of the manor but also they couldn't just go and sell their labor, but they didn't own any of their labor power in that they could just go and sell it on the open market. They were tied to the manor by a kind of web of feudal customs and obligations. Um, on the other hand, they did often have some kind of, um, uh, no, they're not my photographs, just responding to the. Their photo, my girlfriend's Canadian, their photos of Canada, I don't, I don't know who took them. Uh, obviously not all of Canada, they're just little bits of Canada. Um, it's all you need. That's all you need. There's they, so much uh, nothing in the middle. That's all it all looks like that. It exactly. all looks like that. Just, just the nothing in the middle. Oh. Um, I've lost my thread now. But um, yeah, so people, people before um, capitalism quite often did own some means of production or not necessarily own them, but have some kind of claim on, claim on them similar to uh, ownership rights. So they would be allowed to graze animals on the common or to collect firewood from a spinney or to dig peat or to do what, whatever it was. That, so some of the means of production that they used, they had some claim on. Um, and it was part of the revolution that ushered in capitalism was to remove those claims that people for generations had had on this plot of land that they were living on and, and, and growing their food on and grazing their cattle on. Um, and and first, firstly, physically removing it through the process of enclosure, literally just putting fences up around it and evicting people. Um, but then over time as well, removing that this kind of it doesn't take many generations for people to forget that they, their family used to 
occupy this bit of land that kind of belonged to them and which they could make their subsistence from. And MT, were there some questions from the chat that you uh, wanted to ask? There were some questions from the chat. Were any of them about what is fascism? No. <laughs> fascism is the military. What? <laughs> to talk about uh, democratic socialism. I enjoy that you don't uh, position them as the enemy and you don't spend a lot of time trashing them. You also don't spend a lot of time trashing capitalism. Uh, so, yeah, we have a question from Donald James. Capitalism has a role in democratic socialism. Um, historically, it's had a role in providing the kind of material um, abundance and the productive capacity um, for us to, to move into, a, to successfully move into and, and maintain a socialist system. But I, I don't know. I am. I'm. I don't think capitalism has a role in the future of democratic socialism. Uh, I'd also. I don't think. I think. Uh, I think that this is a place where uh, the markets versus capitalism distinction um, is uh, is useful because right. you might have markets, sure. um, yeah. but um, without the allied structures of high finance, without the without lobbying, without um, the uh, commodification of absolutely everything. Um, even if they were relatively sophisticated, and even if you had douchey, um, yuppie-type guys um, making deals and flipping houses, um, as long as it was constrained from becoming systemic, then um, it, it may or may not be useful. Like markets are a tool that might or might not be helpful, um, but. Uh, the whole point of democratic socialism and the whole argument of your book is that we need to go beyond um, capitalism as a system. Sure. And I think with that definition of capitalism as um, a situation in which most people don't own any of the means of production, we don't tend to own any factories or workshops or mineral resources or whatever. Um, with that, then, then there's, you know, so what's the alternative to a small group of people owning that? One alternative that you might that might spring to mind is that we don't we share it out then. So we all own our own little bit of the planet and we choose to do what we like with it and engage in kind of free transactions with everybody else. That in a way that would still be capitalism if you kind of, you know, somehow divided up the planet so everybody had an equal amount and was then allowed to to, to um, truck barter and exchange. The, the problem with that is you, it's not actually possible to do. It's not, you, we can't buy, you know, how would, how would you do that? It, it's not a thing that can happen. Um, and even if you could come up with a system where you had some sort of e equal um, distribution, that would be, so um, just as a little diversion, uh, Robert Nozick has this, this I, I, if you guys are familiar with his Wilk Chamberlain thought experiment, and where he says, even if you, I mean, I argue against Nozick, quite a lot in the book, but this one point he makes, uh, he says, it, even if you distributed everything perfectly equally um, and you outlawed any kind of coercive exchange, so people are only making voluntary exchanges, you'll have someone like Wilk Chamberlain, everybody wants to see him perform. And so everybody pays kind of 25 cents a time. And um, 
after a while he's now really rich and everybody else is a little bit poorer and th that's that so your inequ your your um, equal distribution has been destroyed by the fact you know by by nothing by by harmless free transactions among free people um so to some extent that's that's kind of true it's, it's basically it's only true they notice under under a capitalist system so he's saying equality couldn't be maintained under a capitalist system if Wilk Chamberlain was was like a council employee or a, or a state employee then he would just be getting paid some wages for doing his thing and everybody would be paying to to watch them so um that kind of you know that, that means that you couldn't do it under capitalism you could question could you do it at all it doesn't really make sense to have this idea where everybody privately owns their share of the planet people are dying and being born every day at a, a rapid rate they're just we don't even have the computing power to even work out what, what everyone would get let alone the um, um ability to kind of physically distribute that wealth in that way so the answer then has to be some kind of common ownership but i'm fairly agnostic about whether that means obviously some things lend the national grid lends itself to being owned by the state by, by a, a national body um, but but many things could be owned by local cooperatives or industry-wide cooperatives there could be there's all kinds of um, possibilities and i discuss some of those in the book and to some extent yes yeah, some markets might well exist in that situation but they're markets that would be based on um not on or would be based on a system that wasn't one where a tiny number of people start off with everything and that's one of the things that keeps coming up in the ideology section is capitalists kind of most of their defenses about how great capitalism is start after they've already distributed the stuff and they've ended up with owning almost everything among a tiny group of people and then everything anything you want to change is suddenly not fair but actually you know why don't we go back to, back a step before everything got given to a small number of people and then work out what's fair from that point of view uh, also, um, I think that uh, the whole capitalism equals freedom um, trick that is used um, where, and this was one of the issues that completely delegitimized things like um, Freedom House rankings uh, for me, where they enshrined the sanctity of private property into their very definition of freedom so that um, a country like um, uh, Cuba would um, be intrinsically less free than Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia has private companies. Um, and the, uh, I, I think that it's also important here when we talk about property to distinguish between personal property and sure. what we're really talking about, which is the means of production. Um, yeah. One of the most... One of the uh, great Bolshevik pledges was land to the peasants, uh, that um, a, a family or a village would uh, no longer work um, land for a noble or religious institution or the state, but would actually have their little plot of earth. And similarly, one of the great post-Soviet um, measures that was incredibly popular to get um, public buy-in for uh, the transition to market economies was that whatever um, home you lived in was now yours. It wasn't, it didn't belong to the state anymore. It's yours. You could keep it. it couldn't be taken from you. 
You could sell it if you wanted, but um, it was yours uh, free and simple. And that, for many people, one, it's a tangible material benefit. Two, um, it intuitively feels right. The people who work the land should own it. The people who um, live in um, housing should own it. And uh, the trick is to divorce ideas of ownership from the capitalist structure where um, you ownership essentially means being able to extract profits and being able to sell something financially. The, um, and things become tricky when you go that far, like a personal property, no branch of socialism says that the state owns your toothbrush. Um, nobody wants your toothbrush. No commissar is going to come for it. And I think that, wait, what kind of toothbrush do you have? (laughs) It's a clip. It's mechanical. It's, you know, yeah. uh, I've I've afford one of those on TIR salary. I have noted (laughs) down your coordinates. You will be contacted shortly. (laughs) Okay. Um, but, uh, the, uh, depending on the, whatever structure you want to adopt and maybe uh, homes become personal property as well, but which needn't be that disruptive as long as there are strict um, restrictions on its accumulation. That's one of the demonic elements, uh, mechanisms of um, capitalism, the accumulation, you create property, but then it accumulates into a uh, smaller and smaller number of hands, and that accumulation accelerates because uh, the more property you control, the more pro- uh, power you have to um, leverage out the property of others. Take that. Take but that. nobody wants your toothbrush. You can you can keep it. Goodness. <laughs> Tony Smith, can don't I? ever – hold on. Let me say this. Let me say uh-huh. this. There's a person in the chat. Named Tony Smith. Don't ever act like you know anything about Pascal Robert and what he thinks about what fascism is. Because Pascal Robert would tell you that we don't live in a fascist country. Things are unequal in this country. And things, well, not in, in your country. <laughs> but don't ever try to put Pascal's name on something as if you know what he thinks and how he feels about your argument because you really wouldn't like what he'd have to say. Moving on. Moving on. I wanted to, since we were kind of talking about dumb socks a bit, you, um, you pretty generous with them as well as liberals. You you didn't spend time trashing liberals either in your book. I do just want to read this quote and maybe you can respond to it if you like. I just really like this, this small passage. So the main difference between the liberal left and the socialist left is that the former calls out capitalism for not living up to its own standards, while the latter argues that those standards would be insufficient even if they were met. In terms of today's choices, the socialist left takes all of the rights and demands of the liberal left and adds to them to root out economic disadvantage too. 
the liberal left has little reciprocal interest in adding socialist objectives to its agenda. I thought that was remarkably clear. You know what? Shout out to MT for doing the reading. Yeah, it wasn't just Kuva. It wasn't just Kuva. Can we, can we, first of all, before Steve, before you even answer that, Steve, we just need to call out Gene Bajlan, who is a wonderful man and a great dad, but he lagged on getting us the book. <laughs> and so he kept saying, I think for a week, he's like, ah, I'm going to get you guys Steve's book. Ah, I'm get you get. So we got it, like, not very long ago. Right. I'm not going to say exactly when. I mean, three hours is plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> the best show was when Marcus was like, look, whatever book Jason gives me, I read it. An hour, but I try to read as much as I can <laughs> before the show. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, uh, I always rag on everybody behind the scenes about not doing the reading, and MT always makes fun of me for that. So, I want to give you a big shout out again. Because I didn't, I have all the highlighted questions I wanted to ask him, and I don't have to because you did the reading. So, yeah, <laughs> I did the reading and we didn't use my questions either. Yeah. No, um, Jason is like a proper TA. He assigns readings. <laughs> <laughs> then, then his work is done. That's it. <laughs> that is so not true. Go ahead, MT. So yes, um, so I, I guess. Part of it is that I'm trying to trying to look at this in um, it's a process. There is a, there is some continuity there, um, and it's partly I guess it relates a bit to what Jason was saying. Is we tend to think of these little chunks of history, but actually loads of stuff happened for a long time. And I think that's also true of transitions. I mean, it's almost as if by the time capitalism arrives, it's we're almost trans we're already transitioning. We just there are so even just a welfare state of any description is. A, a move away from pure capitalism it's a recognition that that okay we need to we, we can't just have pure capitalism so before you know and we still obviously have you know in the uk we've still got the house of lords so we've still got hangovers and, and the monarchy we've got hangovers from feudalism <laughs> still in there mm -hmm. and yet we you know and at the same time we, we used to have the, the the national health service so we're you know we're kind of the, this transition happens all the time and there are lots of Kind of starts and dead ends and two steps forward and one steps back i guess so i think we we need to see this as a continuity and i think you know i guess that comes back to, to marx's idea that capitalism is what makes socialism possible so so there's that and then in the i think that quote comes from the ideology section where i'm talking about what terms left and right mean and obviously again i don't own these terms i'm just giving a, an interpretation of, of a way of looking at this spectrum um and, and one of the things you you can bear in mind is that when the term the terms are obviously arose uh, from the seating arrangements in the National Assembly in France at the time of the revolution and the left were the, were the revolutionaries and the right were the old order and the left were sorry Jason Jason's just uh, <laughs> I, read I read the chat oh, right, okay. don't read the chat I've got, I've got something in front of the chat do not stare directly into the chat yeah. 
It's true. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It will suck you in. <laughs> no, I've got it covered up with a book. Oh, you are, you are a G. I, I physically cannot do that with my setup, but you are a genius for doing that because they are talking about Cuba and it's hilarious right now. Right. Okay. Now I have to look at the chat. Thanks I'm a lot. I'm adoring them now, aren't I? I want to say before you finish answering your question, I think even though you say unlearning Marx is a bit of an academic read, I think it was a it was a, a good read. I definitely learned a lot uh, from that book and from our conversation that we got to have um, after. Uh, and this book as well was one of those things where as soon as I I opened it or downloaded it <laughs> after after it was the like, experience, yeah, it was it was kind of like um, so. I think November 25th it drops. That's right, yeah. And, and I, I want to amen, Jason, after reading um, that book and doing that episode with you, when the opportunity came to be on today, um, I jumped at it. I was very eager, and I'm delighted yeah. that I did. I thought you were – you know what? I thought you were saying that because you were like, oh, do you guys need me? I didn't well, know. I always want to be invited, right? <laughs> like, jeez. <laughs> I feel he bad. I know, you're, I know you're you're a busy a busy Cuba, so I don't want to mess with you. And so I I'm so okay. We got to stop having off air conversations, <laughs> Steve. Yeah, this is. But seriously, Steve, we're gonna fawn over your book for a second. And I know another reason why MT read your book because. This isn't the first reading that she's had. She'll be like, I don't want to come on the show. I, don't really get <laughs> I do that. I do she that. Like something. She's like, do you really need me for this? I don't really want to be on the show. Quiet. She's, I always get a message or a phone. When my phone rings, I'm always like, oh, what did I do this time? And I, I got nothing. So I was either like, either she's going to last minute say, I or she's going to be all into it. So I sent a message earlier this morning. I said, if you guys have any questions, put them in the document, right? 14 questions right. she wrote. That means she's fired up. I'm fired up. She, so, so she also enjoyed your book as well. Yeah. Right up my yeah, alley. It's good to hear. It's, yeah. Thanks, guys. It's, no, it's, it's very it's, – it's, it's, it's an easy read, I thought, mm -hmm. um, and it explains everything very clearly. Um, go ahead, Nt. No. no also, <laughs> also, um, from, and I say this as someone who um has taught undergraduates. Um, the it's a great primer, um, mm. for uh getting into capital. Uh, it's an it's an excellent um and sophisticated um entry point into um, Marx and uh, you, and also the, the way that you dispose of um, Nozick and um, the libertarian defense, uh, you're not strawmanning them and it's not invective. Um, you point to some serious problems in uh, their own particular structure, which are, it, it's for, for you Twitter warriors out there, Right. Like you want some ammunition um, for the next uh, posting war. Right. 
Like you could do, you could do a lot worse than the um, than a very rigorous and well written ideology section. Coop, I was this close because I was reading it last night. I was this close to posting passages of it on Twitter. I was like, "This is fucking great." (laughs) So, so instead, I'm I'm all texting Marcus and and Mac. All these like, I'm getting hell fired up reading it. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm actually excited for when it drops. I want to get a physical copy. Uh, we never got our physical copies of uh, of Unlearning Marks with the with the Paxton Audi autograph. I mean, we're I still friends with Zero Books, even though we don't have <laughs> we still have content on Zero Books, Steve. <laughs> well, I was kind of caught. This was caught between the transition from the the old Zero Books to the new Zero version two to version three. But I think I was quite surprised actually that they kind of just pushed it through because I'm I was kind of um, Doug's quite a kind of Hegelian, isn't he? And I I'm kind of a bit to the side of that. But the New Zero books are even further. I was surprised with Doug really because how yeah. receptive he was to unlearning marks and to this. But then the new guys are even further that way, and I just thought, well, they're gonna you know they're gonna want to rewrite or reconsider or something, you know. Um, and I think some some authors they ask for tons of edits and rewrites, but they, they just waved this one through and just just said no, we like the, like the look it, of that. The well argued, timing. off you go. Yeah, you were you were the perfect timing. Um, yeah, yeah. But it it was yeah. I, we won't get into the whole beef, but yeah, that uh, we're friends with Zero. Okay, they still have <laughs> TIR content on their YouTube channel, Steve. Yeah. So we we are in our Christmas stockings. We will be uh, expecting our autograph copy of at least when capitalism. Okay, I, I can I can run to some autograph copies. <laughs> I mean, I can also just buy your book, um, so I think I'll do that. <laughs> but we're not going yeah, to. Just... That sounds good. Yeah, so you although... buy it and send it to me. I'll sign it and send it back. The um. <laughs> wow. Actually, I'd rather buy an a proof copy that you signed. Mm. So none of the money went to zero. <laughs> <laughs> After all, right? Like let the let the workers benefit from the, the fruit of their labor. I do have some proof copies actually, but I did I no, I think they were free from zero, yeah. So I think I probably mm-hmm. have. Yeah, I'll 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 send you um I'll send you an email. This is the Perfect. one episode zero's watching yeah. this show. Please tell me they have the big not for sale stamp. <laughs> they, they don't, but I could I can sort that out. Excellent. <laughs> uh, was there any one, one last question to T? Because we've been going for a couple hours. Let me. Oh, this. I, have, I, have, <laughs> I don't know if you want to answer this. I have I have a big date today, and I have to, I have to do some some finish some house cleaning. Oh boy. I know. Uh, and, and you're gonna hear wants- all about it. <laughs> Luke wants to know if we're all basically posadists. That's what happens when you're late. That's what happens when you're late. No, no. Um, I consider myself a um, neo-reformed posadist. Um, (laughs) And um, I don't think anybody that's less... Posadist than that can even call themselves a posadist, let alone a right deviationists that uh, don't use the appropriate terminology. So, artisanal posadism. Exactly. 
free range Posadism. We'll put that in the description of the show from now on. On the <laughs> hashtag <laughs> artisanal Posadism. Named for Mars says the question is survival of humanity. The mm. current path ends with oligarchs attempting to wait out the death of the ecology in their own bunkers while billions fight in the ashes of civilization. Correct. That's why we need yeah. a different path. I mean, I don't know if people read um, Douglas Rushkoff, the guy that wrote Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. I mean, he might be too, quote unquote, Libby for people. I don't know if Steve or, or Kuba are familiar. No. Um, but it, one of his better known essays that he wrote, and this was a really short essay, he comes in like, you know, he's almost like a, a gear to DOS, a non gear to DOS kind of guy that like yells at, um, really, really rich tech oligarchs, but they pay him, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to yell at them at Google. And so he was speaking in front of a bunch of rich tech oligarchs and he's talking about it. He wouldn't say who it was. And he gives his normal spiel. I've said this before on the show. He gives his normal spiel. And when he's done, they look at him like, that is great. We get it. But what do we do when money has no value and our drivers and security forces turn on us? What is? Oh, I, I have read this. <laughs> <laughs> and he was gonna whack him back. Yeah, and they're like, uh, so the the the, the murder callers that is that a thing? Like, can, from Battle Royale, can we get some? <laughs> we need some murder callers. <laughs> Jeez. Like order there's... 200 more. <laughs> Alexa, order more. Like we joke <laughs> about things like that, but to know that these are literal conversations that are happening. Oh my God. <laughs> I know how we fund the revolution. We have to sell counterfeit murder callers. <laughs> right? Thank like the technology, it, it's molded plastic like make it look like an iphone and tell them you can't open it because that'll void the warranty have an app like and some lights that that flip on and off right um one or two demonstration models everything else just like um i don't know has got um is filled with uh scrap electronics from um the junkyard and you charge them $20,000 a pop and plus a monthly subscription fee for the software. <laughs> for your murder colors. Get it all figured out. Yeah, yeah. And the, right. um, and the irony is that by getting using that as a pump to get the money out of the oligarch's hands and into leftist institution building, you can prevent the conditions from the shock callers ever being activated, so they won't even find out. And Kuba learned all this from watching Andor. I knew he was onto something when he pulled the Harrison Ford and took his glasses off. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> I saved that for my A-plus material. Appreciate uh, it. Is who uh, you are from now on, Kuba. Oh my gosh. Uh, one nice callback to the last show. <laughs> Jesus. One more thing. Well, this is an idea that's out there in a number of places. So maybe we can just address it. 
mm-hmm. um, and more than one person was talking about it. So mm-hmm. here, revolution doesn't work because war doesn't work, just general strike. And we had more comments about this. Uh, public domain says pandemic quarantine was the closest we came to a general strike. And mm-hmm. Donald James adds general strike has never been done before that's going to take unbelievable organizing so how do you feel about about that as some possibility we don't Uh, have to wait in england in 1926 which ended in failure largely um yeah i mean i think i you know exactly what we have to do to get there that kind of depends on the circumstances at the time i think industrial action is really obviously it was a big deal in the 70s and it's becoming it's it's making a bit of a comeback now isn't it, it you know um here we've got really strong anti-union laws um probably not as strong as there are, there are in the states actually but but strong compared to what we had you know when i was when i started work um but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of industrial action, and one of the one of the um, things I think that is different is that there's a lot of public support for a lot of the action that's happening. There's, there's numerous times I've seen people have posted things on Twitter where some guy's gone from the TV station down to interview some disgruntled commuter who can't get to work on his train because there's a train strike, and the guy's gone, yeah, I can't get to work and it's a real pain in the ass, but actually I support the strikers and they should, they, you know, they should get a better pay deal. Um, we've got the nurses here have just voted to go on strike for the first time ever nurses are going to go on strike in the UK so w- when things were different again when I was younger the, we used to have a, a situation where the miners would go on strike for the for the nurses mm-hmm. Mi- miners would have a day of action where they just wouldn't, where they would have a one day strike Solidarity strikes. Mm-hmm. in order to yeah but they but Thatcher made that illegal during that was part of the build up the miners strike because she was worried the railway men would go on strike in sympathy with the with the miners. But the the um, miners had a strong enough union to support that strike effort as well. Yeah, well, not not for long enough to win the strike though. <laughs> I mean, it got um, broken. Yeah, oh, do you mean for them to, to a strong enough a strong enough union to support the strike effort on behalf of the nurses? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, sure. And they would do that, and that was a big thing. You used to see NUM Day of Action, National Union of Mine Workers Day of Action for the for the NHS. Um, but that's now illegal. So now no one else can do it for them. So the nurses are going to go on strike. I don't know quite what form it's going to take. It's certainly not going to be no nurses going to work that day because how to lose public support really quickly is loads of people die. So, but there will be, you know, um, there will be action. There'll probably be picket lines. It will probably be, you know, maybe um, non-emergency staff or something will be striking. Um, so I think, yeah, and obviously in America, there's been this wave of kind of Starbucks and Amazon warehouses and things. I think part of the problem is the workforce is different. The workforce 50 years ago was largely people in big factories working for big corporations, huge workplaces where it was a lot easier to organize. Now there are so many, you know, things have, have atomized. Up a lot. Yep. It's, and I don't, I don't think the person that's asking the question about general strikes understands the atomization in the average workplace. And do you think you could get a general strike in a place like Facebook, in a place like Google? You can't even get a union in Amazon, which is one of the biggest employers in the country, if not the biggest. You can't get a union in Walmart. 
and we really want to talk about unions in these Starbucks, people don't talk about things like collective bargaining and how does that work when you have franchises. So the idea that you're going to have a general strike because you will it to be is almost as silly as saying you can be rich because you have a vision board. It I think it's um, a lot it's of not something I would say, you know, it's it's not, you know, I like the idea of industrial action. I think it, it can be something that can be used done well. But it, yeah, it's not a it's not a basket you want to put all your eggs in, is it? It's something that has to be part of, a, a, you know, there need to be a lot, a lot of different things. We need to be, we need to deal with the, the failures of the things like the electoral system and the two party system. But also we need industrial action. Also, we need better rules to encourage kind of workers cooperatives and things like that. There are lots of different fronts that we need, you know, that's two or three of them, but we, we need loads of different fronts and we need to push on all of them. And industrial action is one of them. But the idea, the idea that a general strike is going to do is, is, is going to be easy to do and it's really effective is, 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 is not the art, you know, it's, 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 if you, it's asking a lot. You can't even get unions to be legal in California for people that work for Uber and Lyft and in the gig economy, first and foremost. And second of all, can you even organize that workforce? Well, um, we're to, if you don't mind my paraphrasing Jaws, we're going to need a bigger we, right? The, <laughs> if you um, think about all of the, any individual item on the list that you gave, and I agree that they're all additive and essential, uh, is a huge lift that requires um, coordinated action by tens of thousands of uh, people, if not millions, all, depending on scale, and uh, sustained commitment over a longer period of time, um, some ideological or social discipline to prevent anybody in a position of responsibility from defecting um, to um, the side of Uber or Lyft or um, Starbucks or Amazon. And um, that is going to take um, creating that collective we that can work um, on those, on that type of scale to uh, implement those programs. Think maybe that should be the next book. And, and um, let me, let me, how do we how do we do that? Uh, because um, I have no answer. Um, I think to be fair, I, there is there is a kind of a, a bit in this book where I kind of skip over saying kind of okay, this is this is the this is the what we do. This is uh, what I've done is I've I've outlined the whole kind of the big project. And then that oh yeah, I noticed. Kind of like, you know, this is what what we need to be aiming for. But how we organise to do that is. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, that's a whole another book. Um, I mean, but, but even even knowing, I mean, well, the point of this book is to know where we should be going and why, and why we can't stay within capitalism, why we have to get beyond capitalism, and mm -hmm. what the justification for that. And I have it, yeah, answering the ideological questions and everything. Um, but yes, the actual nuts and bolts of how do we organize and, and do that is is not the, the remit of this book. And it's kind of, I guess it's because the, the point of the book is, I like you say, we need a bigger we, we need more people on our side. And there, those people are there that kind of share our goal. And 
instead of having being called a libtard by a tanky, they need someone to say, actually, look, you know, we agree with that. Why don't you move one pace to your left mm-hmm. and drag the guy that you're at work with, the right wing guy, or the centrist that you're at work with or that you play football with, and you have these conversations. Here's some ammunition to, to go and bring that guy. You know, here's some something for you to think. Actually, I could move further to the left without, I mean, people don't kind of have that conscious brain, that conscious thought process, but it's something that would, this reading this book hopefully will bring people that are in that position a bit further left and, and also give them the ammunition to talk to other people and say, why didn't, why didn't you think it looked at it this way? And that maybe brings more people to the left. We all move a bit to the left, then we're going in the right direction. I mean, that's why Chris Smalls was so, you know, or is, he's, course still alive and still doing his thing with amazon but kind of a fascinating story where you know you can take people that even had very different ideological beliefs politically but getting them to get together to to strike because they understood the importance of labor power and that's on a very small level he did it at one place and no one's saying we wouldn't like to see those things. But again, when you're talking about an instant gratification epoch, like it, that's all people want. I want a date. I, I want food and gourmet food, it, it, groceries, my laundry folded. It's so instant that now you think you can get social change instantly because you read about it or you see it in snippets. You don't have to do the long form work of research, right? So to sit around and go, well, we need a general strike. It's like, you know what you need? Go organize one workspace, organize one workspace Go organize one homeless encampment. Uh, frankly, I'd settle. Go organize one live chat. <laughs> oh my lord! Right? And, and, get and get everybody to sign up, right? Like, um, if you're not a Patreon, we'll take labor. Um, <laughs> and the between, um, granted, none of um our, our shows have got um a million um subscribers and it looks like an ecosystem of um tiny followings but um 10,000 20,000 10,000 more 20,000 more um just federating the podcast audiences would give us some mass some um some like resources to be able to coordinate um, collective action, but we somebody has to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, since the this is not uh, we don't have the coke money um, coming through anymore. Um, again, A O C H. Not the <laughs> south of the border, um, Coke money. Um, but then it has to be, it, ha- it has to be inspired. It has to be um, like a combination of willingness and faith, 
right? Hope perhaps is better than faith. And I think that one of the um, great things that your book does is it shows that it is not hopeless, that there is a um, potential path beyond capitalism, uh, which we all we know is inevitably breaking down. Um, and what remains is whether will, as as a kind of collective left, will be the ones who um, are able to uh, take that step beyond capitalism, or whether will be dragged into that future by other forces that may not like us much. And I, I want to say this. Pascal and I were on a show about a year ago where this show was basically centered around the idea of general strikes. And that came up to Pascal and I as a question. Um, they, they were like, uh, what do you think of general strike? And I said, well, what does it look like? I mean, do you remember exactly what was said, Toussaint? Uh, what do you think of a general strike? Mm-hmm. Um, we, you guys spent some time clar- clarifying terms, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but you guys brought in, uh, if I recall correctly, the more mm-hmm. practical realities of like strike funds and how exactly is this going to look? Mm-hmm. How long will you need to hold out? Mm-hmm. Going to go on strike? All of these kinds of things. And do you remember what that person said? Do you remember what that person said, Tucson? I do. Uh, the, person, the person said they were willing to hold out shopping at Amazon for three months. That was the general strength. Truly, that's a martyrdom operation right there. <laughs> that's also, <laughs> it's also a boycott. Yep. Not and we show. yelled out, I think we yelled out in unison, you mean a boycott? <laughs> yeah. We've we've net we've yet to go been invited back on there, but yeah, we I, see the energy. We we understand. Everybody here understands frustration. Like, yeah, I literally live in another country because I can't afford to live in the one I'm from. We all understand the frustration. We all see the suffering, or have seen it, have witnessed it, have dealt with it. That's why this book is an important read for the people that want the instantaneous solution. Right. Uh, I'll say two things. Um, I think it's important to work with the labor that we do have, work with the the people who are unionized and organized already. If you're going to have a general strike, you should talk to them. Talk to them first. Uh, solidarity strikes can be planned. They don't have to be, oh, I saw this union doing this on TV, on the news. Uh, we should do it too. You can, they're ready to be organized. They're organizable. Um, and that's another thing we can, we can also strive to be organizable. Because uh, even the chat sometimes it's like, whew. <laughs> I wanted to share this. This last uh, comment from someone in in the chat, because this is one aspect of your book, Steve, that I did really um, appreciate. So Dig Dug says, 
It's a great comfort to think we are engaged in a very long revolution and aren't just losing over and over. I I I appreciate that. Otherwise, I'm, we're just in agony and mm -hmm. anxiety and stress, thinking of what we're not doing, how we're not Robespierre. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Cuba. The um, I. Every failure is an opportunity to learn and a moment of clarification. And if the left and if we as kind of um, people who um, care about change in that direction uh, take these losses as um, a chance to figure out more about how the system works and what went wrong, then um, that's an advantage because we know that um, the right doesn't learn anything, um, doesn't remember anything or learn anything. I think Talleyrand said that about the Bourbons. The, um, they are caught in their own cycles that are um, as destructive. And yeah, um, if we, and that's another place where I think that um, we need everybody's energy and everybody's um, creativity because there are institutions that can be durable, um, cooperatives, certain kinds of political parties, uh, certain um, community groups, and we should aim towards creating a leftist ecosystem, which not only aims for big change, but is creating sustainable um, small and medium sized uh, organizations within it that um, can, you know, survive longer than uh, bio prestige series, right? Um, at least six seasons. But um, <laughs> the, since the struggle, um, since change take, can take this piecemeal form, like the revolution is the accumulation of um, all of these new ways of interfacing and new technologies and new social relations then we should also think about what kind of social relations, what kind of uses we're putting technology to, what kind of institutions um, we can make with what we have, rather than just dreaming of the day when we could be Robespierre, when we have the Central Committee, when, um, right, like, when I am dictator. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why Steve's uh, previous book also to me is so important. I'm learning Marx talking about the, the failure of the Soviet Union. But uh, Steve, do you have any parting words before we go? Um, the, well, really, yeah, it's been really good to, to chat. And um, I haven't been reading the chat, but I might have a, <laughs> have a scroll through it later. Um, I, yeah, I can't do two things at once. <laughs> no, it, it's you got to watch the show a second time just to figure out um, why Jason was laughing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's like a whole different show. Look, first and foremost, we love 
the back and forth, even when we don't agree, because we don't have to agree all the time. The show wouldn't be fun if everybody in the chat attaboyed us all the time. So it is fun to get, I shouldn't say fun, it is fruitful from time to time to get some sort of uh, pushback. So if you disagree with anything we said, leave it in the comments if you're rewatching the show. Let us know that we are wrong and that we can general strike it because we want to general strike it. And tweet about it to all your friends. All your friends. And enemies. Because if you disagree with us, you're somebody who has a lot of worthwhile enemies. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget, if you disagree with us... We're coming for you, nigga! God, I remember that. You can't... <laughs> I can't. I was wondering when it was going to happen. <laughs> you think that's what's demonetizing the shows? Uh, maybe, maybe we could run that experiment, right? <laughs> I think it's because we said. I think it's because we said the chosen people word. That was demonetizing shows. You can't say the chosen people word. Well, I think. You can't um, say Swiss. <laughs> you can't say Haitian. Um, <laughs> I think perhaps using that word um, in the first five minutes of a show could be something that gets you demonetized. I think chosen people and the plague are the two things you can't say. So from now on, when we say chosen people, we'll say European Haitians. European Haitians who are Polish. Oh, oh my God. You're going to have to post like the official uh, YouTube. These Lore. are the things that you can't say or you're going to get demonetized. And then the official TIR translation. Because the N-word, me and Pascal have had episodes with like Teray. I think there's an episode where it's like me, Pascal, Teray, and Cedric Johnson. is just like... No, no demonetization, but when we had the, the shows about the rapper that is unlikable and the basketball player no one likes. I don't even want to say oh. their name. That talk about European Haitians in a negative light. In a negative demonetize. light. Demonetize. Like, uh, people tuning in late are going to have no idea. <laughs> 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 but that's what I that's what I believe. I believe because we said that word automatically you just got demonetized. The seven dirty words of YouTube definitely communications huh. is pretty high right now. It's hot. Okay, okay, but here's the thing, right? Um I wonder if the uh algorithm, the AI is sensitive enough so that um using the I'll say the uh, the last word in the uh, soundboard clip that Jason likes to play. Um, if the faces on screen are white, demonetized. Oh, you think that's what it is? I, I they might be smart like that. Yeah. Oh. Oh. So they think it's okay when it's a bunch of. Yeah, because imagine how many um, 
hip hop channels you'd be demonetizing, right? For no reason. Um, but if it's, you know, if it's just the top half of the screen and there's the approximate N bombs per second that um, you, Pascal and Touré might drop, um, then I think there might actually be very good reasons to monetize it. <laughs> Jason believes in equality too much. Equality. <laughs> oh, uh, oh! I think I have to. I forgot to say this. I was on movie night extravaganza recently. We talked about one of the worst inward movies of all time, Bullworth. Mm. I was angry. Well, since we're plugging, can I say? Um, I was recently interviewed by the one and only Sean King. I was going to say Kingston. Varn. I was interviewed by Varn recently. <laughs> <laughs> what? Shout out, MT. Did you show Did you show your face in a luchador mask? No, I did not. And he did not ask that of me either. Gotta love him. You do. What were you talking about? Bean. Were you talking about uh, being a European Haitian? controlling no. all the world's money <laughs> you can actually have a conversation without talking about being a european nation i mean it's amazing that that can happen these days just well, when is that gonna drop i don't know yet okay. but keep it on your radar look out for that i'll let you guys know <laughs> what's on your radar jason Sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I like I said, I, I was a guest on uh, Susie Kleeman's uh, Fatal Dates that should be coming out next week, and I was just recently on Movie Night Extravaganza, which used to be on this channel. Uh, we were talking about Bullworth and the era that that came out, and why it's kind of a good movie to talk about, but it was a really horrible rewatch for me. I didn't like it when it came out, and I really hated it as a 45 year old man. Halle Berry's in it. Halle Berry's in it. Uh, we also talked about Halle Berry in Swordfish. She's frequently miscast, if you ask me, but she well, seems very determined to get roles she shouldn't have. The 90s was not a good time for colored cinema. This is true. Kuba was somewhere recently? Oops, sorry. I was... Um, there's a show on Ukraine uh, with... Uh, Stefan and myself that um, went up earlier this week on Sublation and on the Thursday show um, where we also had uh, an excellent guest and guest and um, I think you successfully peace built some people there MT but um, the biggest thing on my radar is getting a hold of those uh, proof copies <laughs> um, I'm interested too. The two packs too. of books. The um the how is there like a transatlantic book rate that we could figure out? I'm in a Commonwealth country, right? There should be some kind of <laughs> some kind You're of royal dispensation. <laughs> oh, and Jean Bajlan is going to war with people on Twitter, and that's funny. So just go to Jean Bajlan's Twitter. And uh, just make jokes. Don't take this shit seriously. And while you're waiting for how capitalism ends, 
get unlearning marks. Definitely. Yeah. We could have done a whole show. We could have done a whole show again because we, I think we did like two and a half hours when you were on last time. We could have done a whole another show again. Just talk. And, and you go, he does go into it a little bit in the book. I think you have about, wait, three or four pages, about a chapter or two where you kind of revisit the main points of, of unlearning marks. Yeah. So I kind of, yeah, a couple of, like a two, two or three page summary of, of the, the thrust of un, unlearning marks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, the. Especially for all um, the Twitter warriors and people who like to post and argue with um, the uh, great rightward tendency um, online uh, on learning marks where you discuss um, how to think about and how to talk about the failures of the Soviet Union. Very valuable. Um, I will I will say this in, in backing up your point, Kuba. Knowing you and Jean Bajlan has been really important for helping, and he, actually to Ray Reed as well, helping me understand history. Hmm. So I appreciate you guys for that. Yeah, I mean, how, like, how I should view history and, and how I should read history. It's the, really um, that's the best possible use I could have put my um, Harvard history degree in. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, it, it made it makes reading Steve's work that much easier, in my mm. opinion, because of you guys. So. A year ago, Steve was on uh, This Is Revolution. So, mm. a bit of history, you guys can watch that that episode as well. And did link you put that in the, in the chat. chat? Oh, damn. Are you going to link it in the comments for the YouTube video? I guess. Okay. <laughs> I will. Okay. Well, thank you, Steve. There's links mm-hmm. in the description to pre-order Steve's book, How Capitalism Ends. There's also links, uh, I believe, in how to get unlearning marks. Yeah. And you also were a co-writer in uh, the Communist Manifesto, kind of a revisit of that as well, right? Or an editor. Uh, yeah, the Communist Manifesto, New Interpretations. I did a chapter for that. That was uh, 1998, I think. Okay. Well. Yes, it was because it was a hundred. Came out for the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the Communist Manifesto. So that was like the a, year uh, that Bullworth came out, and my daughter. Wow. <laughs> important year. A good year, obviously. Yeah. yeah, I got married the first time in '98. It was a glorious year of failures. No. <laughs> I, I started college. Oh, that's right, because I'm older than you. Oh geez, MT, what were you doing in 1998? Quick, what were you doing? I was. Trying what were you to doing? Graduate, trying getting getting close to what graduate. Do you, what do you graduate? Because you needed the credits. Yes. That's why we can't get ahead as a people. Thank you guys. Nah. <laughs>